Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I've got Stefan Svetkov. Did I get that close to right? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, that's perfect. awesome. Terrific. Well, thank you for so much for joining us. Could you give a little bit of background on yourself and, and how you ended up being a, a real estate investor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me. Yeah, so my background, I, am, uh, I have a previous career in financial engineering. So I was trading derivatives or like a portfolio manager in derivatives in finance. So I used to, together with my colleagues, we would manage kind of like a large, like $90 billion portfolio. And kind of if we trade, like we trade, let's say anything that's not less than 500, we kind of are careful not to move the market. And so that was kind of more like in finance and uh, derivatives and, you know, to people, some of the people in the audience who don't know, derivatives would be like options, you know, like options, futures, or sort of any financial contracts written on top of, you know, the, the main uh, stocks and bonds, let's say. Uh, so, so that was my career before. In the last few years, I've been um, investing in uh, multifamily real estate. In the, and in the past, of less than one year, I've been a full-time investor as well. So yeah, like how I got into it, I first uh, got into it, perhaps like many people, by purchasing like a, a, you know, kind of a primary residence, but it was also a bit of a house hack. So kind of living in one unit, kind of living rent-free in a poor family, essentially. That happened to be that I liked the unit at the time and et cetera. So, so that's kind of how I got into it. Like I liked it. And then I and then I started seeing, okay, it's like a very good opportunity for kind of arbitrage, which is really high, hard to find in finance. So I thought there is a lot of inefficiency. You can lever those inefficiencies. You can have like some of the, the, the cash flow sort of cap rate interest rate spreads and lever that. So I thought that's like really nice. And I started investing more. Mm -hmm. So, and I want to, one of the reasons I had you on was, 
you're not just a typical real estate investor, given your financial mm-hmm. engineering background. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the market? Is it truly efficient or are there still inefficiencies where you can capture some kind of alpha? Well, I public think market. you can at the public market or yeah. the, the not real estate, like stocks, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a bit, I think it's, well, I have not put in the systems and I guess like labor and like technology to sort of really be able to utilize i guess the the level of inefficiency that is there that i'm sure there is but it's it's uh, you know hard to capture and i think it takes certain volume and and um insistence and technology in place and so 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 yeah i'm sure this with every market i'm sure it's not perfectly efficient i mean i don't know if you happen on your end if you trade stocks or things like that um i mean they, there are levels of inefficiency and at the point of time and etc and that's obviously what in you know, all of hedge funds or like algorithmic trading firms do but it's not the kind of inefficiency that oh i'd be you know happy to you know or like be able to easier um realize and you know be happy to be able to realize it without actually building extensive systems in place i think it's more of a tech project and um I think there's there's a lot of we say public kind of markets. Like there's a lot in cryptocurrencies. I used to have like a trading system for cryptocurrencies. I was writing my own code and kind of like doing like simultaneous trading between exchanges. That that works. That it can be actually um, very profitable if you really put a lot of work and you keep doing it. You know, like and building your systems. It's again like just a technology. I think it's just a technology question. So and, you uh, think the arbitrage in there was high, it was very, very high, just for the record. In finance, in public markets, in finance, much less. It's just, yeah, there, there's definitely there's very high efficiency now. That's my sense now. I have not gone to the level of exploring deeply those inefficiencies. It's a private investor myself to, you know, to kind of appreciate some of them. But yeah. Mm-hmm. And I asked because obviously that's your background and you decided to yes. pivot away from it. So well, you think yes, you could so make more a, money in, in private commercial real estate, I assume. So as far as making alpha now in um, private uh, commercial or residential real estate, I think it's uh, it, it's a big difference for sure for, for various reasons. You can have kind of regulatory arbitrage at times. You can have, you know, just you can have sort of like appraisal arbitrage between sometimes even changing appraisal methods. Like, I don't know, like I made a four unit into a five unit and the price almost doubled, for example, is one example. So let's say, which is at a relatively low price points, but there's this kind of opportunities there, you know, like a strategy I've been looking at more recently is condominium conversion. So that sort of has a, you know, inherent, um, you know, spread as well. And um, so, so definitely alpha in real estate is very high. I think like it's sort of intuitive to every real estate investor. It's also in part, you're compensated for your labor and maybe hustle and, and, and et cetera, but definitely it's high. I think, I mean, to me, the cryptocurrency market, as far as arbitrage and alpha was a comparison point to an extent, but I just felt it's much easier to realize outsized gains in real estate than then it is in something like cryptocurrency where you would need to have outstanding um, tech on your side and sort of it becomes like building a tech company or something. Mm. So that's more of the, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So you think? Well, in real estate with very little tech, and I've been doing very much data-driven investing, like I'm sorry to, to interrupt. Um, it's like uh, with very little tech where okay, you could write your Python scripts and pull the on-market and off-market data. And you can do it for commercial as well uh, with off-market data. And then I... Uh, have like a model for that and they can share details on. 
but it's a um, very easy technology in a way com in comparison to what you know let's say technology companies would do you would um, you would be able to realize a lot of inefficiencies and kind of have a competitive advantage versus other market participants so i think in that sense if you look at it as a trading system and you try to okay there's all the liquidity you know things are complicated etc if you look at even the off market space you can kind of capture get data on apartment communities even in, in commercial real estate etc and kind of kind of get some insights into the into the price income price income information uh, sort of the income expense information on those communities which is you know there can be different ways to do it you know with either like some published data in parts like Reonome, et etc or using like kind of web scraping with all the as long as you have like an internet attorney to kind of consult you on all the details details etc but um, yeah definitely if you we think of real estate in those terms that you post, like kind of like a trading, kind of a bit of a trading system, even though it's not liquid, at least on the deal discovery side. And then we say, um, you know, what are the the opportunity to realize those inefficiencies and the, the, all the labor that it involves, which is uh, how much technology you need to build. It's definitely an easier space and kind of easy profits compared to, compared to the other. Hmm. So you really think the public markets are now the purview of high-speed traders, quant shops, and, and these type of supercharged tech companies that are now putting investment overlays over to their, their theses, I suppose? Um, I mean, I would, I, again, I I always kind of, to be honest, I always leaned, even though I was that was my job in finance, I always leaned on the alternative investment side. So it was always like, okay, my interest was more like cryptocurrencies and, and then became in kind of real estate and things like that. So, so it was, to be honest, I did not fully explore it in a, in a private investor sense. Like I had, I mean, I had my stocks and like investments, but it wasn't like so professional as far as actually doing it like this in a super technical way, trying to find like inefficiencies. And, and there was always in part, like when you study finance, you get kind of taught that it's kind of what you get taught. I feel that, okay, there aren't, you know, there is an arbitrage. It's really hard to find. It's a little bit like indoctrination slightly in a way. And it kind of teaches you, okay, it's going to be really, really hard to, to actually realize it and kind of that's there's this efficient market hypothesis and that and i'm sure it's not true yeah i, I get it that i'm sure there are inefficiencies but mm, but yeah i think to a big extent it's more quant shops and yeah and of course uh, high frequency trading things like that definitely and it, even just like responding to you know news and like picking that information or even different trend following like machine learning algorithms and that's the way to go and and, and then even if you do that, are you going to realize enormous, you know, enormous advantage over versus the rest of the market? I don't know. You don't have the same. I, yeah. To me, like, let's say personalized private investor risk is more attractive. You can get leverage and get pretty, quite bigger spreads that you can also leverage. And, um, you know, it was just kind of the easier, I think, the easier route than, to your point, building kind of a high frequency trading system and hiring a set of software engineers or something. And so it seems like you brought some of that background and strategy to the real estate space and you keep you refer to being data driven. What does that actually look like in practice? Yes, yeah, so that's a driven in practice for my in my view. Let's say what I think it's not. So let's say when investors pick opportunities and they let's say you read like a Marcus and Millichap report or something, and they would look at okay, the, the outcome of what is a data-driven study. But then they they're not looking behind in, in the data themselves. They don't have intuition about it. You just read kind of a report, let's say, 
where, okay, Austin, Texas, and those other markets are kind of the, the favorable markets, let's say, just as a hypothesis. So that's not data-driven itself because you're not looking at the data, you don't have intuition, you don't know what's going on. So that's even on the market side. And the market side is, okay, the easier part, maybe like 5% of the work or something. But, but even, let's say, on the market side, what is data-driven is, okay, pulling all the even like governmental data. Let's say I would have for yeah, 3,000 counties, you know, I would have all the all the market metrics, the compute valuation metrics as well. And that's something we can talk about as far as overvalued markets. And so we kind of have all these metrics and we have like intuition how they compare. So it's not going to be, oh, let's take Nashville, Tennessee and find the deal in Nashville, Tennessee and it can be a great deal, but then kind of back reason why the market is a great market, you know, in the context of the, the, the metrics within that one market. It's, it's more like, okay, you have all 3,000 counties and maybe you have zip codes even, et cetera, like all the, as much as, as many data points as you can. That's on the market side. On the property side, it would be more of much more work. And that's uh, harder and it's even harder to commercialize or how to say, because on the property side, to me, like you have so much data over the internet now, so you can kind of web scrape all of stuff, but that has all the, the, you know, kind of like contractual terms of service, you know, challenges. So you, so, so you should be careful in a way doing that. When you have like some of the vendor data, of course, like purchasing like Reonomy and, you know, if you have Costar access and et cetera, et cetera, or Prospect now and like all, all that, that, that stuff. But on the, on the property side for me has been, let's say if I, um, an analysis indicator, I primarily do my own deals, like I mentioned condominium conversions currently at this moment are on my um, main agenda and like uh, different multifamily spaces, properties and kind of more short-term horizons inefficiencies, like within like the first six months and like two years kind of thing. And and so so for that, it would be okay. I would pull like 6,000 multifamily, small multifamilies or something, and then some bigger multifamilies too. And, uh, and kind of uh, have them all priced out and put in different models. Okay, what would they be worth as, even if they're condominiums, what they're worth in different scenarios? Is there the kind of like different arbitrage? What is the potential to raise the income? Like the NOI improvement on some of them. Um, on the commercial side, kind of have it fully priced out and ranked. So that's data-driven. Just doing all your underwriting at the level of thousands of data points and having them ranked. In the off-market space, because I know like in commercial real estate, it's very much off-market and people, um, you know, primarily, they don't care about something that's on WhoopNet or Craigs or et cetera, let's say, even though it could be a deal sometimes, rarely, let's say, right? And um, so in the off-market space, it means, okay, you, you can draw data, I know, for example, apartments.com. And that's, uh, I, I'm not like urging people to do this. They should con- consult their internet attorney, like you mentioned, like contractual attorney. But they, let's say apartments.com has the biggest repository of data on commercial buildings. And the benefit there versus using something like Reonomy is you actually have um, insight into the, the rental listings of, of those buildings. So you're not only going to pull the inventory of, let's say, those 100 apartment communities in, um, let's say, around, around Charlotte, North Carolina, but you would also pull um, insights into their income expense ratios. And so I had uh, built a model where you can get you can okay, you can get all the data, you get all the data on apartment communities, but you would also kind of try to price out the exact NY improvement and rank them. And then you get that you could potentially get by simply having sort of let's say are the rents below the you know the, the rest of the, the immediate neighborhood. If there was are they charging like all those extra fees, like pet fees, this kind of other income components, 
water their utilities that are being built, etc. You can kind of model this and see the, the buildings that are, you know, maybe a bit underutilized compared to the other ones. And then one can say, okay, it's a commercial multifamily investor you can say, okay, but you can just direct mail to all of them either. There are just about 100 buildings or 50 buildings, whatever, right? That's true. But once you do it this data-driven way, you have more intelligence. You can also not, you can also say you can be more market diverse. Maybe what if you have a good market metrics, you can pull like maybe more markets and just target your direct marketing campaign to the top 10 buildings or something. Or maybe let's say you're focused in your, your region and you have all your, your agent contacts, et cetera, et cetera. You can, you now know, okay, these are the buildings that before even their income expense sheets coming out and that deal being delivered to you, you have some preliminary insight into that, that into that potentially the you know that's a that's a building where we would be able to to realize an NOI improvement. So so that's another thing. And then you can okay, focus on those 10 buildings in your market and just say, you know, I'm just gonna keep following up with with the, the owners much more than the rest 90 buildings in, in that market or whatever and just trying to you know just kind of give you focus or maybe even in whichever way like try to reach the owners in person if you will or however if you are in that area it just like gives you more information and, and if you do it also across if you're doing more like nationwide you could also just target like buildings that specifically appear to show potential in their rental listings data and then um, then utilize that so, so that's what data-driven is. I would say it's like a lot of work on the property side, like pulling tons of property level information. It's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not little work. You have like thousands and thousands of things to underwritten and in different markets, then there's, you know, it's not, sometimes it's not easy to price them super correctly and underwrite them correctly and etc. In the smaller, uh, smaller multifamily space, one could also write, like in residential, one could write his own ABM, like automated valuation model. And it's not super hard to do in Python. And you can kind of try to price buildings on your own and look for some inefficiencies. And in some illiquid markets in residential space, one can be purchasing buildings, uh, you know, they, they may be even listed on market and they're listed at kind of irrational prices. And I have had uh, this experience as an investor. And like, so in the liquid markets, you can just like find like cheap stuff and down, kind of low or low bow it further, like uh, put like even further offers below asking price, et cetera, and kind of like realize some inefficiency there as well. So that's also doable with data as far as ABM. Also, another thing is like in machine learning for those, like there are two companies, there's a company in New York, I think it's called Foxy AI, that they do like condition scoring on real estate images. So technically, with uh, and it takes work to build up something like that, but uh, I'm sure, but in terms of, uh, using like this kind of computer vision model for uh, condition scoring of images, and let's say using some kind of NLP or some kind of textual classification for reading listings. And again, this is predominantly on market that that part, but that can give you the opportunity to kind of sort of read, uh, you know, like thousands of listings as a human in a way, as a human being, and and be able to you know have them priced and ranked. And okay, one will say, oh, they're on market; they're not a deal anymore. But it's not true. It varies. They're they can be on market in really depressed markets too, where you can bid below asking, or they can be on market, but you get like the you know the the top you know 0.1 percent, and you know and and that can be a really great deal. And I have found really great deals in exactly this way on market, but when pulling thousands and thousands of listings. So is that the strategy? I mean, maybe detail exactly what you're doing with all this data. 
the yeah the strat the strategy is really to pull thousands of on market listings as well as off market what they described for example for apartment communities is is another thing and yes and just uh, have them well and once and have it underwritten have your analytics have your calculations it's the strategy it just goes to have good rent estimates to have good um, kind of value estimates and uh, kind of have your model as accurate as possible that's the whole kind of the whole work and challenge there i would say just to have it as accurate as possible across like different ge geographies. And then uh, you can you can essentially uh, kind of have an automated system that is just underwriting gives growth. It's harder to do in, in, in the commercial side because on the commercial side, it's mostly off market, but you can still do it on the commercial side because if you are somewhat location agnostic, you could pull um, all the correctly data, let's say. I mean, you know, in theory, and, the, and you can just have it and maybe you just have all those buildings ranked for you at your computer and all the thousands of cracks listings and maybe just the top five of them will turn out that they are actually good deals. And then uh, if not, uh, if you like one is really skeptical on all market, then one can just, like I said, like be, keep pulling all off market data and like trying to get insights into which buildings are the better ones and where to focus your direct marketing and you know, agents potentially, you know, et cetera, attention. So that's what it is, but it's really any strategy. So for me, strategies have been, you know, just how to super high cap rate for cash flow properties, like by let's say 20 cap and above for like, that's obviously like small size deals. The downside of the cash flow strategy is like, it's kind of a feel like a cash flow maximization strategy is really a deal size minimization strategy. And it's because if you think about it, if you have like a, a million dollar property and, 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 and again, that's not in commercial, that's in residential space, a million dollar property and it's, has a six cap and you have 4% interest rates. So your cash flow and let's say principal side, sort of your surplus is uh, 2%. And if you have a, let's say an eight, an eight of the size of this, like 125,000 property and it, have, it happens to have a 20 cap, then you're making the same cash flow as a million dollar property with a, with an eight of the capital. And, um, and that's like where I, I personally, I don't really, I don't pursue the cash flow strategy so much since I want to like do equity gains. So I'm focused on condo, condominium conversions in the New York City area currently. So kind of buying like a four unit, making it into condominiums, things like this. Um, so for example, now I'm working on four units in downtown Jersey City. So 1.6 million purchase price and um, kind of make it into condominiums. Uh, so that's one, um, you know, yeah, that's another strategy then like I mentioned, I've tried, that's kind of one of making like a four units into a five unit. I've purchased like a package condo building, like a small condo building as a package where they kind of, there was quite a discount in a way because they felt that those were non-warrantable, the condos were non-warrantable at the time, but they, that changed later as well. And I felt it's an opportunity to make a good spread. And it was essentially like, okay, purchasing the, the whole condo building as a package, but then uh, reselling them individually or, you know, refinancing some of them, etc. So, so it's really, and then on the commercial side, just income value add. So I've, I've done that a little bit, just like buying a property, raising the rents. It's a private investor, so not, not syndications. So the income side strategy, the condo conversion strategy, the various other residential kind of arbitrage strategies, and just illiquid markets too, like some really depressed markets and like purchasing properties very cheap, some auctions as well. I have done. Yeah, so why it's, it's why don't why don't you syndicate these? Why don't you bring in outside investors? Well, let's say because okay, so my 
perfect uh, strategy profile right now is one is something like this downtown Jersey City, so like 1.6. So price points are around that, they're like around 1.5, where you can realize an equity. And let's say that one is condos is maybe like 2.4, and the IRR is like 90% or something. It's like very, very high. Uh, over two years, like, but it's kind of not so big to syndicate and financing is not so favorable in a residential space. So let's say for the conversions, I feel that if I do syndicate it, then financing would a little bit suffer and it's not going to be so nice and mm, versus just doing like partner and getting conventional financing, etc. And and also the opportunity, the opportunity to kind of heal up after and like take out your investment even before they're selling the units. So there is a little bit of financing side that difference as far as the residential conversion space goes and uh, for for an, it's an equity gain kind of equity gain arbitrage strategy then as far as the commercial space what i've been willing to do and i just got like a bit too busy with uh, the conversions i've been willing to get into cre or commercial multifamily at the smaller unit size around 25 units where one would and let's say similar purchase price like that maybe like a million to a million and a half where that is never there's not the trendy markets, but where you can execute sort of similar to the borrower strategy. So kind of a little bit of a short-term horizon where you can raise the rents almost uh, right away within the, maybe the first six months, even like, let's say um, raising an eighth of the unit, uh, let's say raising a third of the units by 50% and then maybe some of them after, et cetera. And, and kind of here, yeah, um, refinancing super quickly or relatively quickly, then kind of trying to sell the building within like a year and a half or something like this after. So this strategy I've been super eager because it's, it's more short term one. The IRR is again, super high, uh, approaching triple digit numbers. And that's something I find very, very attractive. As far as syndicating such deal, I mean, I could, it's just, it's not so big. It's kind of, let's say a million and a half deal. You, it's kind of the minimum, the minimum size you would, you would go about syndicating. It would be probably like six to eight investors or something. Yeah, I, I'd probably do it the commercial side once I kind of don't have, uh, you know, liquidity on my end, uh, you know, at, at the point. Uh, so, you know, just to, to kind of get the deal done, you know, like bring in extra capital. So definitely, yeah. I mean, the bigger deals, I, I kind of am more concerned with like equity strategies, like a little bit of the flipping kind of, and that of the BRRR mentality. So I kind of, I don't want, I don't want to have more of the longer hold periods. And I don't know, just like my personal taste at the moment, I'm sure it's going to change in the future and eventually maybe converge to kind of what everyone is doing as far as like bigger units, commercial multifamily. But, um, but for the time being, those are like, those are, those are my strategies. So not cash flow, I literally ignore already, even though I have like properties, like um, I have a property with over 20 cap and that is like a rental property that is doing doing really well, but it's not my, I think it's not the best strategy. You end up kind of buying like really tiny deals and et cetera. And yeah, so, so commercial value add, short terms, six to 12, six, six months to two years is very high interest of mine. It's smaller unit counts where you can, quicker kind of turn around the units where the condition is stabilized as well. But just the units, the rents happen to be below market because they are just less liquid markets where it would be a little bit harder to sell. But uh, you can still uh, realize some of the arbitrage. And are you able to find opportunity right now? I mean, what do you yeah, think, there are. What do you think the market is like? Yeah, let's say in the theory space, like I, I haven't been able yet to... Um, I've been just busy and like putting my capital in those conversions currently in uh, in the residential space. But they do did uh, pull like a few case studies in uh, 
I'm in the New York City area and I wanted to, so I wanted not to do like the trendy markets, not like national tendency, et cetera, because it's a short-term flipping strategy. It's the opposite. It's like depressed markets. So it would be like, so there were like a few buildings around like 25 units that, you know, people bought it. I don't know, one of them at like 1.1 million during COVID and it's in the same condition without any renovation, just raising the rents because they're all BO market. They're just, they're commonly BO market and then it's like listed at 1.9. So this kind of strategy and the IRR of that is really high. So it's kind of like only a year, less than a year after, after purchasing. So this kind of strategy executing like an equity um, gain, like six, within the first six months, most of it to be able to realize on stabilized property, just to try to raise the rents on some of those smaller, it's a smaller, um, fewer units. So you can kind of a little bit quicker turn it around so that's, I think, uh, so there are, yeah, there, and I saw a few, with a few other case studies and I haven't had the chance to direct my attention to this yet, but that's uh, kind of next next on the list. And yeah, they're having some really, really great deals. So the IRR, I did like a post on LinkedIn on this and uh, I, I just showed that, okay, the IRR, if the sale takes really long and et cetera, something like that, it's basically 99% two-year IRR. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, people know that IRR is also very tricky. It's, of course, it's like super funky kind of number. And when you have the shorter horizons, it does kind of tend to jump up. But but again, I mean, this is the, the IR, this is what the standard residential buyer, 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 buyer rent, buyer rehab, rent refinance repeat. That's the standard kind of mm, the IRR that would be on a, on a, on a word. Well, except in commercial, you actually, well, in a residential, the word, typical work have a little less IRR because you would not be able to leverage a front to tend to buy it cash. It's actually not for, you know, but in commercial, you can just even leverage a front and it's even better and it kind of be easier to realize it. And so what's the plan moving forward for yeah, you? So I, for me, it's uh, do like more condo conversions in the New York City area and do some of those kind of contrarian CRE, contrarian commercial multifamily in um, markets that, you know, maybe people don't want, where where you just can easily buy a stabilized property that happens to be in a decent condition, uh, where markets are commonly, what I've seen at least, if you take something like upstate, it's like rents are like 50% below, <laughs> you know, Go market and it's, it's just kind of ridiculous. Like you, you go and I've seen it at buying like some of the sm- smaller properties by myself. And I don't know, I bought like a five unit and I know I rose the rents like over fifty percent in with zero renovation. And and it's the same thing in the bigger in the bigger unit sizes. Of course, it gets to disappear and disappear as you really raise the unit size. It's not going to be at a hundred unit property. It's going to be at like those kind of mom and pop as they call it 25 units and so yeah it's really own own deals in commercial multifamily that's kind of next steps for me and you think eventually you will you think do you think you will bring in outside investors at some point yes so i mean i think at some point but i don't want to have it as a goal i don't want to have a situation where i'm kind of optimizing investment management rather than optimizing good investments or I would say I want to just bring people only because okay I just don't have other capital I don't want to just bring them for the sake of having I just don't like like this kind of counting units and counting AUM you know when people kind of start competing let's have more units and more assets under management because I feel it's not let's say the most sincere or 
It depends on what one wants. I mean, it depends. If like, let's say the primary incentive is to keep being an asset manager and that's, then yeah, then I would do that. It's just for me, the primary incentive right now is I just want to be a good investor. If I need to pull in extra capital, I do it, you know, from people. And yeah, so I'm sure in the commercial space that that will make more sense than, than with financing as well. And so probably some of those projects, my capital will kind of dry off and I will end up syndicating, you know, syndicating some of them. And I think it would be great. It would be great for investors as well because it would be something different and they would have like a shorter hold, two-year hold maybe. So it's markets that they, that are, they, they're not appreciating markets. It's, it's like that, but I think there is good opportunity to realize some of the initial like time zero and kind of, you know, you do flips in kind of things like flips you do in the press markets, right? And uh, if you want to buy and hold, you buy and hold in in like uh, Florida or in Texas, right? And that's kind of the, the mentality. So, and of course you can also realize in some of the booming markets, you can realize I'm sure, you know, with your experience, like at your firm, et cetera, have probably, you know, had uh, plenty of experience opposed to sometimes realizing like a great value add in a, you know, what is a more primary market or appreciating market that's possible as well. I'm not excluding that by any means. It's just like the norm kind of in the press markets. And maybe, maybe it can kind of systematize and scale a little bit. And that's what I've wanted to do. And I haven't had the time yet with other projects. Yeah, understood. Well, if people are interested in learning about the investments and, you know, potentially participating at some point, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, so the best way is to... My website is on the analytics side. Uh, my website is nvanalytics.com. So E-N-V-V-Y with a double V analytics.com. And they can also do like get sample report. I issue um, data on overvalued markets. I'm not sure if we have a time to touch on that. So that's, uh, so issue data on overvalued markets. So essentially like which counties and states like uh, I see as overvalued. And when I say overvalued, that's really kind of doing like similarities in finance, computing, uh, valuation metrics, um, which what I found to be most predictive of downside risk, um, and sort of calibrated a model versus the drops that happened post 2007. And I looked at all kinds of different factors. And so then, that's a separate business from the real estate business? Well, that's kind of... <laughs> where they all work together, I guess. More of a hobby. Yeah, that's more of a... Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of an analytics, real estate analytics. It's kind of from the data-driven side. On the data-driven side, I have an analytics uh, uh, LOC. Yes, correct, correct. That's uh, probably the best way to reach to me uh, since uh, I haven't been capital raising that far. Um, so, so that's, uh, uh, yeah, so they can, so let's say they would see um, which states are overvalued right now or in the sample report, and they can purchase county-level data and kind of get like more granular analysis. And that was really, um, really useful and really predictive of the magnitudes of some of the drops post-2007 because real estate is very fundamental. And a few people like kind of get skeptical towards like something like predicting um, price changes, but but it's not really predicting appreciation. It's, I mean, it's predicting like downside risk. So, so downside risk um, in real estate happens when something goes quote-unquote overvalued. So the what seemed, at least in my study, and I did this at the beginning of COVID, and I was like very personally interested in doing it because I was concerned with what if I invest in some markets and the, we have reached the peak in the cycle, let's say, and those markets take a downturn. So I wanted to kind of find, okay, can we have continuity also from the market standpoint, even though people are, let's say, calm that on the property side, they execute their value add, that gives them some kind of 
you know, reduces their cyclicality of the market because you get this kind of proper deal on the property side. But still, I want to know, okay, besides that, I mean, I don't want like the market acting against me in a way. And like if it in the event it reaches a, a peak in cycle, and that's less of a concern now because I don't know, okay, there's no inflation, everybody's really um, positive, etc. But but that was something I wanted to look at. And so I did this study, and it's not something I have invented. So I did like price income deviations where the most predictive, it's kind of such a simple, obvious thing where the most predictive of downturns post the peak. So affordability deviations are incredibly predictive. So at the state level, there was 84% correlation of kind of price income deviations to like the subsequent actual downturns in each state. And then at the county level, about like 74%. So kind of harder to predict small geographies. But they thought, wow, that's really amazing. You can you can have a sense of you know which markets are more at risk. Uh, so at the time, for example, the overvalued markets were not markets. Sorry. So like there's you know all the specific market of the overvalued let's say states, high level speaking, were California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida, and they were in affordability pricing income framework. They were 40 to 60 percent overvalued, and then that was roughly also the magnitude of the drops they experienced over the next about four years on average. So they would drop like between 2007 and 2011. And, you know, that the drops in those like really overvalued states and then there's like specific markets within them. But the drops in those states would be like 40 to 60%. And then in undervalued states at the time, the drop was only 4%. And so I thought that was really amazing because that told me, okay, you can have, you can be actually protected if you're in an undervalued market and that happened, that's also in an undervalued state maybe. Uh, and then you're quite protected even if a systemic crash to real estate happens and you're kind of in a peak of cycle, you're quite protected. So all the states that were undervalued, which were about eight states at the time, the drop there was incredibly mild. They dropped only 4%. And that was kind of like the biggest real estate crash in history. And I thought, well, that's a great finding because you have like, you know, only a 4% drop, which was actually the average income drop in the US back then. So, so I thought, okay, they essentially did not drop in valuation terms. So essentially they kind of dropped by income and for an example, that was Texas at the time, where Texas was like 5% undervalued and it dropped by only 4%. So that was uh, that was quite interesting. And then at the current time, um, you know, like it's a little difficult with governmental data. It's like super lagging. So I have data as of end 2020, pretty much, as far as like having all the price income and if also housing, uh, supply and population, etc., and kind of like derive a combined uh, valuation metric of that. But essentially, uh, like Idaho, just for like before we wrap up, I could just mention like state of Idaho uh, was end of 2020 or Q4 2020 was 25% overvalued in this framework. And again, to clarify, that doesn't mean that, okay, the prices are not going to perform super strong in Idaho. It's a booming state. It's, there's a lot of demographic favorable factors. It will perform strong. In fact, in real estate, there's a lot of trend. And there's a lot of autocorrelation. And some places have more autocorrelation than others. For example, Florida as a state has super high autocorrelation. And it's so so if you just want to predict, like bet on appreciation somewhere, maybe you can just invest in, in Florida and uh, in different markets there. And it, it's kind of with 77% uh, autocorrelation, you'll get like last year's price performance this year. So even in those terms, which is, by the way, also the measure of weak form inefficiency in finance. And that's like, that was some of the some studies for efficiency in real estate. Like, for example, like Istanbul, Istanbul um, home prices were done on this kind of weak form efficiency, uh, whether there is autocorrelation or other, you know, measures of historical prices predicting future prices. And it kind of had shown in that Istanbul study, okay, there, it's not weak form efficient. So there is, 
you know high autocorrelation and so, so that's it so so in fact like if a mark if a state and again like state or county or exact market is overvalued it doesn't mean it's not going to perform strong it most likely will by autocorrelation and so let's say if Idaho is 25% overall, most likely will continue to be being a super strong uh, performer. But, but, but the thing is, the moment peaking cycle gets reached, this is going to be, at least in my study, like what's most predictive of subsequent potential corrections. Assuming there is a correction scenario, there's also a situation where prices just don't correct. Maybe it gets resolved on the income side, maybe incomes catch up, or maybe even kind of have an income super growth. And, you know, you don't even get any decline in the prices. But those are, you know, like some of the other high-performing states are a little bit overvalued. It's very, very mild. It's very different from abroad in other countries. And I can give some examples where I don't have the data, but what are actually similar, somewhat similar studies by uh, certain economists abroad. So, but yeah, but in the U.S., so the state of Nevada, 16% I had at Q4 2020, Arizona, 14%, Colorado, 14%. District of Columbia, 12, and the states of Texas and Washington, 10% overvalued. So it's very, very mild, very, very mild. The majority of, let's say, U.S. states pretty much even undervalued. And I mean, quite a few also fairly valued, let's say, maybe half are undervalued, and then the rest like barely and uh, several overvalued. And that's about it. And then as far as cities, it would be, well, Boise, Idaho, I've, I've spoken at some events about Boise, you know, Boise was like 33% overvalued at the beginning of COVID. Prices appreciated even further. It's an extremely booming city. It appears it's a little bit risky there now. It's um, a bit uh, too overvalued. And then, um, you know, some of the other really strong markets like Tampa, Florida, okay, it's 15%. Phoenix, Arizona, 15% overvalued. Again, in this framework. Then um, Austin, Texas is uh, like 14%, San Antonio, 12%. Etc. So those are like just again the goal here is not to label those markets as either attractive or not. They actually mostly tend to be attractive markets. It's more just to have a sense of okay, those are that's your predict that's your risk management measure in a way. That's your pre- downside predictor on the appreciation side. You can do your autocorrelation or you can do your job growth, the population growth, etc. Studies. But these are just uh, downside predictors. It's a risk management measure. And I've been kind of urging a bit the real estate community to use this, which is what I call valuation metrics. Because if you think like in finance, if you have an investor like Warren Buffett, so let's say in the simplest sense, he would know the price earnings ratios of his securities. Now, of course, unless they're like tech stocks or something, okay, that's not fundamental. You can't really value it this way. But real estate is fundamental. And so you should have, one should have like kind of, I believe, firmly the kind of the equivalent of price earnings ratios or sort of valuation metrics and have a sense of when prices go above fundamental levels and kind of use this market discipline. And when you have it, you also have a full history, kind of you get a history of that and you get a situation where you can even know your appreciation better. Because if you take, for example, the state of Florida, the state of Florida, the prices even now are roughly around the levels of uh, 2007 peak. So if one can think, okay, it didn't even exceed its prior peak, maybe it's not a super strong market. But if you look at like fair valuations, because it was like super overvalued, like 40, 50% in 2007, if you take fair valuations and the exact date of when it was fairly valued, and you use this as a starting point to your time horizon where you judge or gauge appreciation. So now it's done more rigorously. So now you actually realize, okay, once you sort the data like this, um, you realize, okay, 
Florida has been the only eastern, the only state in the whole eastern half that has had super growth. And then you have all the western states that are super strong in Texas. But in the eastern half of the U.S., pretty much the only super performer. I mean, just this is high level speaking at the state level. And so, but you don't see that. I wasn't seeing that until kind of computing valuation metrics and knowing when exactly was it fairly valued. What is the starting point for kind of my time horizon for, for that? So, yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And I encourage people to check out the content you put up on LinkedIn and, and the website and others. We're bumping up against time, but we, you know, we could cover a lot more ground. Could you remind people the website again and how to best get in touch with you if they want to learn more about the work you're doing? Yep, yep. yep. Yes. So they can reach me on LinkedIn, uh, like you mentioned. So Stefan Svetkov on LinkedIn, or they can uh, go to my website, envyanalytics.com, envyanalytics.com. So they can get a sample report on overvalued markets. And also, if anyone wants to learn more data-driven investing, I've been doing some mentorship. It's it's a bit of, you know, I try to kind of, it's a bit difficult for me with time, but I try to put some time to help people and kind of it helps me learn and improve my methods as well. So I've been teaching people, kind of showing them like very hands-on. It's like a five, it's like a five uh, session course where I show them kind of very hands-on what I do. Okay, what is my off-market model for apartment communities? What is, and it kind of, it's, it's very much literally showing the scripts the data, like how I pick uh, investments in this framework and kind of showing the approach and kind of teaching, you know, either more experienced or newbie investors this. Awesome. Well, Stefan, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to staying in touch. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. All right, man. Take care. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.